Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. I'm here today with Tom Rathjen. Tom, would you introduce yourself? Hello. Thank you for the opportunity to do this for uh, Starbase Indie. And my name is Tom Rathjen. And I uh, live here in Indianapolis, but uh, recently moved here after retiring from my uh, NASA career, most recently in Washington, D.C. So we've been here in India a couple of years. Which came first for you, Tom, an interest in Star Trek or an interest in human spaceflight? You know, both of them started when I was very, very young. But to the best of my recollection, I was already very interested in space in general you know i i was born in 64 so i was sort of sort of uh uh starting to be aware of things when uh, uh when the apollo 11 moon landing happened and the subsequent landings and my parents my father were really good about you know getting me out of bed when i was a very young child to witness those kind of things on on their little black and white television and and uh, my father was an engineer as well and he uh, my parents gave me things like, uh, oh, I had a little telescope. I remember when I was, uh, you know, in elementary school, very young, and it came with little books about the planets. And somewhere in there, I had little books about the United States uh, space exploration program at the time, the Gemini program and, and the beginning of the Apollo program. So I was already interested in those kind of things. And then I, I do remember discovering Star Trek, you know, vividly because it was one of those, you know, lightning strike moments in your life. I was visiting, I, I believe I was between second and third grade. It was one of those, you know, summers and we were sent off to stay with the grandparents for uh, a week or two uh, during summer vacation. And somewhere in the afternoon on one day, I was flipping channels on their TV and, you know, discovered Star Trek and syndication. And, you know, again, already being interested in space and catching a glimpse of this magnificent spaceship flying through the stars and not having any clue what it was, uh, you know, I just instantly got, you know, mesmerized and hooked. And then I remember on that vacation making note of, okay, three o'clock, whatever it was on the afternoon, every day I'm going to tune back in. And I think I caught three episodes when I was with them. And I remember drawing, you know, grandpa, grandma would get out the colors for us grandkids. There were more than just I staying there. And we would draw pictures and I would be trying to copy what I saw with the enterprise and planets and things like that. So I remember that happening, but it was, it was, you know, already it just kind of, kind of uh, gave me a way to even further enhance and explore my uh, already existing interest in space and, and human space flight that at that time was still so very young and in its, its early phases. So it all kind of went together. And I, then I remember not long after that, following as a, as a child, again, in later elementary school, the development of the space shuttle uh, as it was coming along. And that was in the news. And we would get little weekly readers or things in school that would talk about that. And I remember saving all the newspaper clippings and then being so excited when it, a, the first shuttle that rolled out of the assembly line for approach and landing test was named the Enterprise. And so even at that, probably that was probably about fifth grade or something, I was aware of that. And it's just the tie between the two, between Star Trek and real space flight and NASA, for me, just has always kind of been together ever since that young age. And now you went and worked for NASA for more than 30 years. Tell us about your career. Certainly. Yeah, I did. I, uh, you know, always stayed interested in, in NASA. Of course, I went to uh, 
uh, uh, college to get an engineering uh, degree. Didn't know where I'd end up, but then uh, really uh, blessed with the uh, opportunity. NASA came and recruited at, uh, at my school, uh, Caltech in uh, Pasadena, California, and signed up for one of the interviews and uh, was lucky enough to be offered a uh, starting position there. So I started in 1987, immediately like, you know, like four days or something after graduating from from college, I loaded up my car and drove from California to Houston and uh, started there. And so I worked at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas uh, for uh, uh, more than half my career. Uh, for about 21 years, I was uh, at Johnson Space Center. It was a really exciting time. You know, if you'll, uh, this was 87. So, you know, the Challenger accident happened in uh, January of uh, 86, I believe it was, which I was a junior, I know when that occurred at Caltech, maybe it was 85, I may be a year off. But anyway, I, I you know, vividly remember being in college when that happened and then the opportunity to go to NASA while they were still in their uh, uh, return to flight phase you know, and work on the shuttle program uh, in that phase was very, very exciting. Uh, so for my first five or six years or so there, I was involved in uh, actually uh, designing and, and leading projects that uh, related to what we called flight crew equipment, uh, which is basically means things inside the space shuttle that the crew, the flight crew, the astronauts interact with. So everything ranging from cameras to special tools, to the seats, to their hygiene equipment, to their food preparation uh, equipment, uh, and other special uh, provisions, storage lockers, clothing, trash management, all of those things fit into flight crew equipment. So I got involved in that, had the opportunity to uh, uh, design the uh, uh, a uh, replacement for the old space shuttle galley. And that was where they prepare their meals. And that was sort of my big project for quite a few years. And then eventually uh, went into uh, management, leading, leading uh, uh, groups that were working again on that kind of thing, flight crew equipment. And then uh, moved into actually space medicine, had the opportunity to do some uh, uh, office leadership in, uh, in the uh, space medicine organization where the flight surgeons uh, and medical researchers operate. And that was a lot of fun for a couple of years. And then got involved in uh, human factors engineering. And I uh, led the uh, office that managed a lot of the human factors laboratories. So where you would do you know, experiments to uh, collect data to eventually uh, uh, determine requirements for designing uh, future spacecraft uh, in order to meet uh, the uh, crew's uh, needs for various missions. So I led that. That was very, very interesting. I had the opportunity to then go back and get a uh, advanced degree in human factors engineering uh, through uh, a program that NASA had. And so that all kind of kind of played together. And then, so I continued doing that for a while and then had the opportunity uh, to move into uh, uh, program management. The uh, Constellation program uh, was just starting up in about, I want to say about 2005, 2006, uh, which was NASA's first really serious program about, you know, returning to the moon, replacing the space shuttle with a, a suite of new launch vehicles and spacecraft that ultimately would uh, would would reach the moon uh, to stay and eventually go to Mars. And 
So I got involved in that, in uh, the uh, test and verification group with Constellation. That led to me then having the opportunity in 2008 to move from Johnson Space Center to NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., continuing to work the uh, Constellation program, but from the headquarters sort of policy uh, uh, and uh, uh, overall requirements uh, uh, viewpoint. So did that for a little while, then uh, changes happened. Constellation was sort of canceled really in the end it ended up being evolved into what today you know some 14 years after that is the uh now the artemis program uh and then also uh the uh, uh initiation of the commercial crew program occurred at that time so when those changes occurred i kind of went with that flow had the opportunity to work commercial crew from uh, headquarters for a little while and then and then uh you know was real heavily involved with the artemis program ultimately as the uh uh, director of the, um, we called it programmatic and strategic integration, which is uh, all that fancy words really means managing the, the uh, budgets and the configuration control and the risk management and the schedule management for all of the elements of uh, what's now Artemis, so the Orion spacecraft, the Space Launch System rocket, the ground systems at Kennedy Space Center, all of those things together have to be integrated and, and uh, you know, eventually all come together for uh, a, a single stacked vehicle uh, launching from Kennedy. So did that for a while until I've been retired in uh, 2018. And uh, after that, now I've continued to stay involved uh, part time as a uh, consultant uh, uh, on NASA programs through the Aerospace Corporation. And uh, so that's been uh, very exciting. That's pretty sounds much like, my career. It sounds like you've done a lot of cool stuff. You've solved a lot of problems in your career. What kind of engineering problems have you been most proud of solving? You know, the one that really stands out to me, I mean, you know, all, every project was, uh, uh, you know, has various challenges for, uh for a space vehicle application you know there's just things about that that are unique working in zero gravity uh the uh, spacecraft uh, environmental uh, uh requirements and limitations and things like that but the one that really stood out to me is we had this challenge back in the mid 90s when uh as part of uh the united states effort to uh prevent uh, nuclear technologies from uh, proliferating into uh, non-friendly nations, the United States had a strategy of partnering with the former Soviet Union, uh, you know, as it was going through its, you know, transitions and, uh, and partner with them on space activities. And the idea was that the, you know, Russians were having their own economic trouble and, and by doing that, it would give their engineers and scientists and technical companies something else to uh, sustain them other than selling you know nuclear uh, uh, weapon technologies to other countries so that was the the push behind it under the it was under the clinton administration and and so nasa started down that path of what's you know ultimately now become the international space station which of you know russia russia is a key partner with you know providing uh, that has provided key elements key modules you know key key spacecraft pieces of the of the international space station but before that uh program started launching immediately we wanted to, to do something to uh to learn to work with together you know learn from each other's programs and kind of set the stage for the longer term international space station and well the russians already had a space station the space station mir 
which means peace, I believe, in, in Russia. And they, uh, you know, had it uh, already up there. They were still doing some uh, additions to it periodically, but it was well into its, you know, mature life phase. And so NASA has started to, uh, working with the Russians, send our astronauts to the Mir space station. And uh, both through, uh, uh, through uh, Soyuz uh, uh, launches, putting our astronauts on the Soyuz to go up with Russian crew, and then eventually sending the space shuttle to dock with the uh, Russian space station Mir, which was really an amazing, I mean, you know, if you lived through that, it was one of those things that you thought you would never, ever see in a million years, you know, the United States space shuttle docking with the Russian Mir space station. And so those images are just fantastic. But so during that phase, uh, one uh, particular challenge presented itself that I uh, ended up being responsible for uh, uh, solving or designing the solution. Uh, so when you send astronauts to space stations, they end up staying for a long time. It's not like uh, the space shuttle that I think the longest mission was maybe 16 or 18 days, a little over two weeks. Uh, Apollo was about the same to the moon and back. Well, when you, at the time, go into the Russian space station, uh, you know, it was months minimum uh you know some of those missions were a year you know and uh or you know six months wasn't unusual so you know we uh, built up our first crew that we sent you know or maybe three months stay and then the next would be a five month stay and so you know we were building up uh but uh the uh, uh plans that were put together had us returning uh not just our crew but then some of the russian crew uh from the space station and those those joint missions on the space shuttle rather than coming home on the soyuz and uh great okay well that's that's uh, should be easy right well the problem is when you've been in space that long you become physiologically deconditioned to where you're uh, you know you're in zero gravity so bottom line is your heart doesn't have to work as hard to pump blood to your brain and your body gets used to that over months and months in space and becomes physiologically deconditioned you know works great in space you know we that's one thing we've learned over all this time is humans adapt very well but then the you know sudden uh you know very short uh transition from zero gravity back to earth gravity uh you know can present problems and so uh the problem with the space shuttle is it's like an airplane and you sit in seats that are upright and you come in and you land like an airplane so your you know your your head is up gravity is pulling down and so if we had returned uh, those crewmen in the normal seats uh the doctors predicted that they would you know very likely pass out uh because the sudden gravity that they would experience their heart would not be able to adequately supply blood to their to their brain and so uh uh, and so we needed a solution for that on, um, you know, the Soyuz, so the Russian capsule like vehicle, it's not a problem because they're basically laying down in couches They're the gravity vector is perpendicular to their chest, you know, as if it's, you know, coming through their chest and out their back. So they're laying down. So the, the heart doesn't have to work as hard to, you know, pump up. It's basically perpendicular to, to the gravity. So we needed something like that for the space shuttle. Well, you know, sounds simple, but you know, in an environment where uh, budgets are tight and schedules are tight, uh, we needed to come up with a solution where we could put essentially couches or, or you know, reclining beds uh, in the in the mid deck of the shuttle where upright seats were meant to go. And also to, to complicate that, there's uh, normally two crew 
in that place and we needed to bring home three. Well, you get into very uh, complicated situations where the loads that the spacecraft structure has to take because you have to, you know, come in and there's landing loads. The driver turns out to be crash loads. You know, you have to design if you had a, an off nominal landing and the vehicle crashes, you want your crew to survive just like in a race car here in Indianapolis. You know, we even worked with some of the uh, uh, race uh, 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 hardware designers to learn to uh, uh, how to best use restraints and things to survive crash environments. But so we had to come up with a, basically a seating system that was reclining, put three where only two were meant to go and would survive all of the loads without modifying the space shuttle itself, because then you would be getting into big bucks if you had to go back to the prime contractor Rockwell at the time and say, okay, we need new, new structure, which adds mass, you know, adds new interfaces and does all kinds of things. So we had to pick up the same attach points that, uh, that the old, uh, the upright seats did and build something else. And so that was a, and, oh, and we only had like, you know, six months to do it or something because the first Mir mission was coming up. So, so that was a really exciting. What we ended up developing was called the recumbent seating system or the RSS, really exciting names that NASA comes up with, but, uh, but we did it and it was, uh, uh, very interesting. It attached to the existing attach points. We had to come up with some really innovative ways of uh, using some of the floor structure in one direction, but not in a uh, in a uh, like a torsional direction, but you know simply in a in a uh, compression direction, so that we uh, wouldn't uh, uh, you know damage the uh, orbiter structure in certain loads. We ended up having to the the. The uh, space on the mid deck, it, you know, it's very cramped, and the only way to fit the crew in that body orientation was for them to actually put their lower legs and feet into the storage lockers that were on the front part of the mid deck. There just was not room to lay a crewman down without putting them into some very uncomfortable posture. So to be in a normal posture, we came up with, well, let's empty these three lockers in front of them. And those are now going to become their footholds essentially and, uh, and do all of that. So that was probably, you know, it, I don't know if it sounds as sexy, you know, to, uh, uh, compared to a lot of different things, but, uh, but that was a real challenge. It, it was a real program. It flew, you know, we uh, it was used for, uh, you know, bringing the crew that, uh, uh, had the very unique experience of, of being the first American astronauts to go up on the Russian space station and spend a lot of time and then come home on their old familiar workhorse, the space shuttle, and do that safely and, and then have the opportunity to, you know, rehabilitate into the, you know, one gravity environment uh, without the uh, stressful condition that would have resulted if we had brought them home in the original seating provision. So, so that was probably my favorite. I had lots of others. That shuttle galley was, you know, exciting to me because, you know, that was something that gets you got used every day, many times a day, you know, the crew has to eat. And so knowing you had something up in space that was being used uh, uh, constantly was was exciting. Um, you know, over the time we've had some uh i'll call them you know real-time anomalies something's happening in space you know something didn't work right and we would get called in to uh come up with a repair you know not quite maybe like the apollo 13 fit the you know fit the uh air scrubber from the command module into the lunar module round hole you know but uh, but similar kind of things where you've got something happening there's a limited time the crew's got to solve this or or the mission will not succeed and getting involved in those kind of things were also a lot of fun but yeah overall that seating system was a pretty big deal 
Several things occur to me listening to your story. First, I really love the phrase off nominal. <laughs> off nominal landing, which basically means it crashed, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. There's, yes. there's a certain um, flair for understatement, I think, yeah. in engineers sometimes. You know what Elon Musk says about uh, theirs when they have a explosion is it was an unintended disassembly. Unintended disassembly. Or something like that, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> There's a series of statements like that that I've seen online about field conditions in biology. You know, when you uh, step on the bug, how do you put that in the report? And it's like sudden dissection in suboptimal conditions. Yeah, there you go. Yes, rapid dissection. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I love it. The other thing that really occurs to me as you tell that story is that a lot of the reality of human spaceflight is very sort of finicky and um, very detail-oriented. And like you said, is this an interesting story? It's a it's an engineer story for sure. Um, it is interesting, I think, but it's interesting in a different way than we get from these sort of space operas where everything is very uh, dramatic and you're making big changes, where this is you know, is the load torsional or compressive and which one can you, how much can you have in these things? And it makes me think that a lot of the reality of getting humans into space is very sort of policy driven that you're dealing with a lot of bureaucracy and you've done a lot of that in your career as well. Is there a bureaucratic problem that you are really proud of solving? (laughs) Well, uh, and I can't, you know, I am very proud that I have uh, had the opportunity to be part of the commercial crew program and the transition from traditional government owned and managed and operated space systems to commercial space systems and partnerships between uh, government and commercial entities. So certainly, you know, not something I solved by myself, but having been a, you know, a small part of that, uh, I really did enjoy. And it's, you know, the significant difference is that I think uh, is making commercial space successful now is the government's traditional way of doing things was, is, uh, or was and is very prescriptive. You know, the, there will be volumes of detailed requirements that a, a, a vendor or a prime contractor will have to follow to build a government system. This is, you know, true in the, whether it's a military jet or a aircraft carrier or a, a NASA spaceship like Orion, that's the way the government tri- traditionally has done things is very prescriptive. A uh, contractor has to follow it when things don't work right, then the government has to pay to revise those requirements to pay the contractor to adapt the designs. And it's, uh, it, it, it is, you know, it's a time proven uh, uh, approach that you know, has resulted in, you know, the United States military being the, you know, preeminent strength globally and the success of uh, Apollo and the space shuttle and, and the space station uh, were, were highly successful. And, and so it's a proven approach, but it is not, it's, it's not a cheap approach. It is, you know, when, you, when affordability starts to become more and more important, because you can't just, you know, keep throwing dollars at it like Apollo could because there was this larger, you know, geopolitical beat the Russians uh, thing that was important to us as a nation at the time. You know, we couldn't NASA and and the military also realize they can't go on like that. They've got to find ways to allow innovation 
come into the process in order to ultimately improve affordability. And so that's what's really the difference is that by going to these new approaches with uh, commercial cargo and commercial crew that NASA has done with our partners such as SpaceX and Boeing and and uh, orbital uh, for the for the cargo was intended to give those partners latitude to innovate. So the requirement set that they were given to work to is very thin, you know, very thin. Basically, here's the mission we want you to do, and that was a part that I got to be a part of at the very beginning. Again, being at headquarters before, and this was during the Obama administration, uh, the 2010 budget recommendation, uh, president's budget recommendation is where commercial crew kind of had its its birth uh, in that. And then when when that kind of a thing comes out, then NASA reacts by putting together study teams. And so, you know, at the headquarters level before you have a formal program. And so I got to be on one of those very first study teams for commercial crew. And so I led what we called the the concept of operations sub team. In other words, I had a you know a group of people that we pulled together. I had you know we had a, a astronaut, someone from space station, uh, uh, other engineers uh, on the team, and then in a very short time we had to come up with well, what does this really mean? How would we really operate? You know how would you know who would take care of the crew? Is it a taxi cab kind of thing or is it a rental car kind of thing you know with commercial crew you know do we rent the spaceship and our astronauts fly or does the commercial provider provide pilots that fly it and we just ride in the back and uh who recovers the crew what happens if it lands in the ocean in the wrong place you know we had to come up with what's our vision for how this would really operate and uh, and put that together and then that became uh a uh, part of the initial you know requirement set that then ultimately there was a formal program the commercial crew program managed out of kennedy space center uh partnered with johnson space center that then uh took over as the lead centers to implement the program but being involved in kind of that initial little seed that had to grow was was a lot of fun and especially seeing how it you know played out that you know that was in 2010 and so you know it was what was it it was december 2020 when i think the first you know, NASA paid crew went up to the space station on the SpaceX Dragon. It wasn't the first Dragonfly. They had a test flight with crew, but this was the first one where we said, okay, all we're doing is paying for seats. Here's our crew, send them to the space station. And it was a truly commercial mission. So that was 10 years, you know, in there. So to see it come to fruition, very, you know, in many ways, very close to that vision that we came up with uh, in that or those early days was super exciting. And that time frame, I think, would be surprising to people who don't watch it closely, right? Because that whole first couple of years where you're doing that detail work of what are the, even though it's a thin set of requirements, they have to be the right requirements. And that's but always they, more work than it feels like it should be. They they do. And, you know, when you're, when you're uh, letting commercial companies innovate, you also have to let them, you know, fail and stumble and, you know, they try things and some things work, some things don't, you know, the, you know, the two companies that are, you know, made it to the finish line for commercial crew had different approaches. You know, SpaceX was very much a build a whole bunch, test a whole bunch, fail a whole bunch and eventually figure it out and go. Whereas Boeing was a little more methodical like NASA was of we're not going to do a test till we're pretty darn sure it's going to be okay. And so we do a lot of analysis up, up front. And so, you know, different approaches, and that's fine. You know, there's no right or wrong approach. And uh, 
So you have to let them figure that out. Now that 10 years, you know, you mentioned the political aspects. Uh, it could have been shorter uh, based on funding. Um, you know, I mentioned the this all started with the uh, uh, president's budget request uh, that came out in 2010 for fiscal year 2011. Well, it, it was asking for $6 billion in 2011 for commercial crew. Well, that was too big of a bite for, you know, Congress to accept, you know, too big of a transition all at once. So in the compromise that came out, which resulted in Artemis still existing, rather than Constellation completely going away, also then skinny down commercial crew to be done in more bite-sized pieces. So they got a billion dollars, I think it was that first year instead of six. And so what you end up doing then is you, you throttle your development pace accordingly. And so working with, uh, we came up, you know, different acquisition mechanisms to say, okay, well, if initially we're only gonna be able to buy developments up to this point, you know? And so we're gonna buy developments up to a preliminary design review, let's say. And then the next year Congress appropriates more. Okay, now we can afford to go the next step. So some of it was throttled by budget availability as part of an overall compromise for this, you know, very, very unique transition from government traditional to commercial uh, provided. And so, um, you know, so it makes sense looking back on it, you know, it makes sense. You know, those of us that were kind of believers at the beginning were like, oh, come on, come on, we can do this, give us the 6 billion, you know, but, uh, you know, but, uh, but anyway, so some of that time was spent uh, there, you know, we'll never know if we had had all the money could, how much faster could have they done it? You know, uh, you know, in some cases you get into a situation we like to joke about, you know, you can't, you can't bring on nine women and have a baby in one month. You just can't, you know, there's certain things that are going to take a certain amount of time and no matter how much money or resources you throw at it. And so, but I do, I do feel, especially at the beginning, it was off to a, a very measured start where I think the companies could have progressed faster if NASA had been ready to purchase certain milestones more rapidly. But all of them involved had certain, uh, you know, unknowns that got them, you know, certain things that became challenging. You know, SpaceX, for example, had the problem with uh, called com composite overwrapped pressure vessels. You know, that, uh, there's an approach that they were using that NASA hadn't traditionally used, where you can build very high pressure tanks to hold, you know, oxygen and other important commodities. And you can make them re a lot lighter if you have very thin metal, but then Kevlar or whatever composite uh, blankets or, or overwrapping on the outside. And so that was a new technology and, and uh, there were some lessons learned. And, you know, I don't know if you remember the spectacular explosion of a SpaceX Dragon on the pad one day, just in the middle of the afternoon, it wasn't even a launch day or anything. You know, they, they, that was an accident because of these composite overwrap pressure vessels and, and lack of understanding. It was some of that. So was it an accident or was it an unexpected um, test environment that failed? Yeah, it was, it was an off-nominal off fuel loading. <laughs> off-nominal, yes. so, yeah. You know, but so they had those problems, you know, Boeing, who's about to fly or who, I'm sorry, who just did fly. Boeing flew their second uncrewed test flight uh, just a, a week or two ago. Uh, and uh, this one was very successful, you know, but this was their, their third attempt at that. They flew one in, in fact, I was there for the launch. It was in, I want to say either November or December, 2019. And the vehicle launched successfully, but it had software problems and it was unable to rendezvous and dock with the space station. It did come back and had a very successful land landing, 
which is awesome because not many capsules land on the land. Uh, Soyuz does, but none of ours have until that. So that was still awesome, but they didn't make it to the space station. It took them two and a half years then to be ready to refly that. They tried again, uh, I think it was last August, and they didn't even get to the point of launching because they had some valve problems before and they had to roll it back and do some more work so uh, you know both companies have struggled and both companies have overcome those struggles eventually and you know spacex is for sure up and running you know we fully expect boeing to be up and running and flying crew uh shortly now that they've had a you know very successful uncrewed test flight so uh you know that's what you go through you, you know you go through unexpected anomalies and issues and and you work around them so what are the, the, some of the limitations that you have to keep in mind when you're designing for space travel that people might not think about? You know, one of the, one of the uh, uh, most interesting ones is uh, Velcro that uh, people probably don't realize. And as soon as you come to NASA, you realize, you know, there's this golden rule about Velcro use. You think that that's so benign, that shouldn't be a big deal. But, you know, imagine you're in space and you're an astronaut. And you're floating in this, you know, capsule and you've got all kinds of things like a pen to write with, or you've got a camera, you've got a lens cap from the camera, or you've got uh, some tools that you're using or just any of those kind of cables. Goodness gracious, there's all kinds of cables all over the space station and in zero gravity, they're just going to float around. And so how do you manage that? Well, this wonderful invention, you know, back in the, you know, before the Apollo program was Velcro. That's just this, you know, awesome, you know, repeatable, reusable, you know, hook and pile uh, mechanism that you could stick things to. And so, so the crew loves Velcro in their spacecraft. They would love to have the walls are all made of Velcro and, you know, the Velcro pile. And so you have fuzzy walls everywhere. And then you've got the Velcro hook patches on every single thing that you, you have your food packets, your drink packets, everything. And forks and you know you and you can just stick those to anything but what we learned is that the uh, velcro that you're able to procure or purchase uh, has a, a flammability concern in elevated oxygen environments now it's not a problem for you and me on earth in our you know oxygen nitrogen environment but in the spacecraft even where you normally have a oxygen nitrogen environment you know similar to what we have on earth there are contingency situations that could cause that oxygen level to increase. And so, you know, for example, on the space shuttle, there were operational situations that could elevate the oxygen level to 30%, which is higher than it normally is. And so at that level, Velcro is more flammable than it is on earth for you and I in a normal environment. And so it was determined that in order to be safe, you couldn't have more than four square inches of Velcro in a, in a patch or an, a, an integrated section. And then you'd have to have at least two linear inches around it before you'd have another patch of Velcro. You know, there was this maximum area of Velcro that would meet the flammability requirements. Yeah, that was determined by testing uh, where you would actually put Velcro in different sizes in a, in a chamber that you would simulate these environments and, and you know, determine uh, at what point the flammability or the ignition can occur. And, you know, and in shuttle, that was an easier probably, you know, back in the early days of Apollo, initially the uh, Apollo vehicle was 100% oxygen. And that's what the United States had been doing. In fact, you look back on it now and it's sort of remarkable we didn't have a problem on Mercury or Gemini, but those vehicles flew in a 100% oxygen environment. Well, that is an extremely flammable 
environment. I mean, metal can ignite in the 100% oxygen environment. And, you know, there have been problems. The Apollo 13 accident was basically a spark in a oxygen tank, you know, which ended up in, the, in having an explosion. So, uh, you know, early days of Apollo, Apollo 1, they didn't have, they didn't understand that issue with Velcro. There was a lot more Velcro than we would have used if we had understood the problem. And while, you know, that wouldn't have necessarily prevented the tragedy of the Apollo 1 fire, it was certainly one of those things they learned afterwards that the overall flammability hazard of that cabin in a hundred percent oxygen environment was, uh, was not safe and, you know, and, and, uh, had to be changed. Now, then in the redesign, they ended up changing it to a two gas system. So an oxygen nitrogen environment for, for later Apollo missions. So that helped solve the problem to something more like what we ended up with on shuttle. But, you know, that's something you probably wouldn't normally think about is it's a closed environment, you know, when you're on earth here in a car or a boat or even an airplane, you just don't have those kind of things with, that you have in space where it isn't really closed. You know, you have vacuum outside. There is no way you can cycle your air, your environment with your, with your external environment. And, uh, and so all those things have to be taken into account. So what are some of the other interesting or surprising human factors failures? I suppose most of our surprises are because something failed. Yeah, you know, there's some big ones that we constantly keep in mind as lessons learned. One that is just, you know, kind of heartbreaking, no matter when you read it or how even though so long ago is the uh, Soyuz 11 flight, which was the, uh, I believe it was the first flight of a particular Soyuz con uh, configuration. The crew was very famous. Well, they went up to one of their space stations and the mission was being followed by people in, in Russia and, uh, and everything had been going very, very well. And then uh, when, this, when they finally came home on the descent, it seemed like everything was going fine. And after it landed, the ground crews come and the crew's dead. And they open it up and the crew is completely, you know, lifeless uh, and they had, they had asphyxiated. And the problem was that there was a valve that had failed. They had a, uh, an equalization valve that I guess its purpose is when you dock with a space station, you know, any little bit of pressure difference between the air in the space station and air in the vehicle can make it really hard to open a hatch or whatever, make it hazardous. So you have things that equalize that, you know, before you open it. And then that valve's supposed to be closed when you're not docked. And there was a, uh, that valve failed and they started to lose their atmosphere inside the cabin. And honestly, I'm not sure if it was, it may have been, there's sections, there's two pieces to a Soyuz that separate on landing. And it, it may have been between those two pieces as opposed to between the Soyuz and the space station. I can't recall. But anyway, once the, those pieces had separated, this valve remained open. The crew started losing their environment and the human factors part comes into it in that there was no practical way for the crew to manually close the valve. There was a manual device or lever, but it was not designed for quickly in a suit, you know, with your gloves to be able to to close it. And I think afterwards I read they did a uh, like a test to see how long would have it taken and it was, you know, over a minute to, you know, to, to close this valve manually, which was much longer than it took for the atmosphere to vent, uh, vent out. And so, you know, there's an example where that was definitely point to that as a human factors failure, where you did not design it so the human could prevent that tragedy by being able to manually close the valve. And so you have to understand your potential failure uh, modes. And I'm sure they, you know, I mean, they had the manual ability to do it. They knew that valve might not close. So you, it had a way to close it, but it was not designed with the human's ability 
and the time frame in mind. So that was one. Another one that was not that long ago and is kind of interesting because it you know gets into our whole commercial space flight area is if you're familiar with the Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 vehicles, uh, which by the way, you know, flew successfully not that long ago. Richard Branson and a couple of others, you know, flew on a test flight and they will be sometime soon selling tickets to fly on their Virgin Galactic spaceship. These are suborbital flights, but still you can do some interesting science and interesting things. And that's what they're planning to do. Well, they were doing a test flight a few years ago, and that's a very unique vehicle where it, it you know, it's kind of has this sort of double wing thing that they're double fuselage thing with, with wings on the back that uh, when it launches in one configuration, it almost sort of looks like an airplane, but then, when it comes into land, the, it's it's like it almost sort of folds 90 degrees and the whole back tail section sort of folds up it's to do what they call feathering. So it's the, sort of like making the vehicle a greater aerodynamic resistance to help slow it down as it's coming in back into the atmosphere and to land. Well, that feathering action it has to happen at just the right time or the whole vehicle might lose its aerodynamic integrity. And in fact, that happened where the uh, one of the two crew members, one of the two test pilots unlocked the, uh, the mechanism too early. And that resulted in complete failure of the vehicle. One of the two crews survived, was able to parachute out at the right time. The crew who made the mistake did not survive. But that's another interesting example where, you know, you should not design something where you can make that kind of critical mistake as a pilot. You know, it's almost like on our Microsoft, are you sure you want to delete? Are you really sure you want to delete? You know, it was just too easy to make that uh uh, you know, critical error that put the vehicle in a configuration where it had no chance of, of surviving. And once you do that and the thing, you know, comes uncoupled or, or whatever, so that it's no longer a rigid, there's no way to put it back in the configuration, you know, you, you unlock it and it's done. So that was another very interesting and fairly recent, you know, human factors uh, failure that you have to have to think about. You know, the, make, the big thing about human factors is to consider the human part of the overall system. Some people like to say, well, you're designing for the human. Well, not exactly. It's that you have these complicated systems that involve an environment. They involve the machine, whatever it is, whether it's a vehicle. It involves the interfaces of that vehicle to the environment and to the human. And then it involves the human. And you have to take the entire system into the, what is the human's role in that system? What is the system's role on keeping the human alive? How is the human supposed to interact with the system? And taking all of that into account, and then as part of that, and, and part of human factors engineering is really understanding what the human capabilities, limitations uh, are given an extremely you know, wide and variable population you know, that, uh, that needs to be considered. So it's a, you know, challenging problem. So. Tell us a little about what you think the future of human spaceflight is going to look like. Yeah, well, it's a very exciting time because you have so much happening both with NASA and, you know, the sort of government led and with uh, commercial industry that's doing things both in partnership with NASA, but also looking at doing things on their own. And so, you know, many, many of us that are, you know, looking ahead and, and, you know, involved in things like consulting, like I am through the, through the Aerospace Corporation, definitely see that we have a lunar neighborhood coming up in the near future where we will have, you know, multiple entities or multiple governments, companies, whatever, participating in, in lunar activities, including crude lunar activities. 
uh, in and around the moon and between the Earth and the moon. Uh, you know, NASA's got uh, its Artemis program that I've referred to here a time or two, and it's finally getting close to flying. You know, it was there. They they are in in a, in a week or so. I think uh, early June they're planning to roll their first test vehicle out to the launch pad, try to do the uh, they call the dress wet dress rehearsal again of being able to fuel the vehicle. And if that all goes well, then maybe an August launch. That one's uncrewed, but you know, by 2024, we think they'll fly some crew on a test flight and won't land on the moon, but they'll fly around it kind of like on Apollo 8. And then hopefully by 2025, maybe 2026, we'll actually be landing on the moon again through the Artemis program. Initially, those will be short missions. You know, a little further down the road, maybe the early 2030s, the plan is to have sustained missions where you have kind of like the space station, where you have habitats on the moon, Artemis missions coming and going, crew changing out and maybe permanent human presence. So we seem to be on track for that. And, you know, barring some, you know, major political shift and continuing to fund the program or some major, you know, accident that uh, you know, hopefully uh, uh, wouldn't occur. We seem to be on track that that will, will occur. So I you know, definitely see that in the future, but potentially in complementing it, but also potentially competing with it, you have companies like SpaceX, like Blue Origin and others that have their own humans to the moon programs in mind. Uh, and in some ways those, inter those, those overlap and intersect. You know, SpaceX was chosen to provide the lander for the 2025 Artemis moon landing mission. Well, so they're going to use their Starship. Well, they also have plans to fly Starship missions without NASA involvement. And they already have customers lined up to, to have Starship missions, you know, to the moon in orbit or to land. And so, so if Artemis is successful, SpaceX's Starship is successful. Well, then SpaceX's commercial lunar stuff is going to be successful. It all kind of goes together. So, you know, we really envision this this neighborhood of multiple people coming and going and, and beginning to establish a presence on the moon and finding you know, uh, economies that are self-sustaining based on lunar resources or lunar research or just uh, you know, the experience of, of those kind of things that lead to tourism and that sort of thing. And so you know, one of our big interests, you know, maybe a concern, maybe an interest is that, well, if that's really gonna happen, we, somebody should step up and do some master planning. You know, we kind of use an analogy of like master planning a, a neighborhood or an industrial complex or something where ahead of time you can think about these things and try to make sure all these different participants can play together, can interact together. Uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if you had a starship and it involves some refueling capabilities, you know, in-space refueling is, uh, uh, is required for the Starship's architecture. But wouldn't it be great if an Artemis thing got in trouble and needed to use that refueling thing because they have common interfaces, you know, or something like that. And uh, being able to communicate with each other and you're all, you know, on the moon, just, you know, having some kind of, you know, common, like a cell phone network, but works for all of these different lunar players and not just you know, there'll be other nations involved as well. Uh, you know, that's what we kind of foresee is what the future is, is that I think what we did a, a metric on, I think there are 60 different companies right now. And those were just domestic companies that are working on some aspect of uh, equipment or hardware or missions or infrastructure for lunar missions. Certainly all of those aren't, you know, working to some common goal yet because there just isn't anybody, you know, NASA is probably the closest thing 
But NASA's not telling SpaceX what to do for its commercial things. NASA's not telling Blue Origin what to do for what it's thinking of. And so hopefully there'll be an opportunity to sort of bring everything together and people will want to do that in order to uh, have the resulting neighborhood be as efficient and effective and safe as possible. So but that's sort of what I see. I see definitely Artemis, at least the first missions, you know, being, you know, taking place, you know, a lot of it's already being built. So even if you had a big budget political thing, a lot of it is already existing. And so I, you know, I, I can't see that completely going away until Artemis does indeed reach the moon with crew. And, and then I definitely see these commercial entities stepping up and, uh, and also being players in a, in a lunar environment. You know, something like Mars is farther away, to be honest. You know, we talk about the moon being a stepping stone to Mars, but there's, there's, uh, that's another, you know, order of magnitude quantum leap forward or whatever in, in, uh, in complexity and safety and, and redundancy and in, in mass and, and volume that has to be transported. And so, you know, the number of launches to do a Mars architecture mission is very large. And so that's, you know, hopefully that is in the future, but, you know, that's farther down the road than the 2030s when this lunar neighborhood will uh, will take shape i believe if you had the chance to go to the moon yourself would you oh absolutely oh certainly i'd go anywhere i'd go to the space station i'd, I'd go take a ride on dragon like those uh, inspiration four guys did oh i would i would jump in a second yeah i never i tried to be an astronaut i didn't ever make it past certain screening point but uh oh i would love it you know i'd love to see if i had the money i'd buy a ticket on the Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic thing, if I if I could, you know, and, and it need to be about more than just the experience. But I, I think that there is, to, to, you know, it means something to to everybody differently. But I think that as you know, spaceflight experience could contribute to all kinds of endeavors that are positive, uh, you know, not just gratification or to wear the pin on your shirt, but but to have that experience can contribute to uh you know your understanding of the you know global environment and and be inspirational for being an activist and problems like that it can inspire artistic activities you know there's just all kinds of things so i so if i did something like that it, there'd have to be reasons but i'm sure i could come up with some <laughs> <laughs> there would have to be reasons but you probably could find those i could find them yeah. so what are some of the things that you see star trek getting really right about space travel you know, that's a tough one because it is science fiction. And, uh, you know, I, I think they did uh, a really good job with the, the human element of it, you know, and especially, you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an old guy, so I'm a diehard, you know, original series, new generation, some of the early shows. And I like all Star Trek. I watch the current stuff too. But, uh, but you know, I really think especially in those early days where where they didn't have a lot to go by we hadn't landed on the moon yet which is you know fascinating to me that if you look at at when the last episode of star trek aired much less was filmed it was months before apollo 11 landed on the moon you know and so all of that new uh, original series that is so timeless you know was uh, before the you know human experience of truly stepping on a terrestrial you know body had had happened and so but i think they did a fantastic job you know with that human element you know things like you know recognizing some of these human factors things like the crews did have a need for rest they had a need for shore leave the episode various episodes addressed you know training and rehearsing for things you know you have to go through an academy to be, learn to be a crew member you know it just 
it addressed those kind of things. And, you know, from, from that level, you know, they also addressed, okay, well, what do humans, you know, need at the mission? They, they addressed food systems, you know, they addressed, you know, crew quarters and, and crew provisions and things like that. And so they did a really good job. You know, the other thing that they, I think Star Trek did a good job, especially when they were really under the leadership or the, you know, producer role or whatever of, of Gene Roddenberry was to stay believable. Even when you do some science fiction things that have no basis in proven fact or science yet, like warp drive or artificial gravity or transporters or things like that, you still do it in such a way where you, you know, if you accept this one innovation occurred, you know, if you can accept that as a science fiction reach, then, then you build things around it and they're still believable. And I think, you know, and I think Star Trek did that, you know, especially the early uh, series uh, and the kind of mid series in the nineties, where you still had space was, you know, astronomically correct, if you will, you know, it was, things were still vastly vast distances apart. And even though you had warp drive, it took a while to get somewhere, you know, you couldn't so, you know, instantaneously get from one star system to another, even with warp drive and, you know, the different types of planets, the different types of stars, they were very uh, deliberate about trying to be factually correct. And they, you know, consulted with science firms during the production of, uh, during the writing process, uh, you know, and developing their stories to, to try to maintain that believability. And, you know, I think the, you know, early Star Trek did that, even though, of course, there's things that were not real, you know, yet, but it, it, it minimized those number of things that you had to accept as, uh, okay, I'm going to set aside the fact that we really can't go faster than the speed of light. And I'm going to accept that warp drive exists. And, and okay, it's kind of based on some things that are real, like there really is antimatter. And there really is the idea that if you bring them together, matter and antimatter, you'd have this vast energy. Okay, I'll, you know, that's great. You, okay, we don't really know how that then results in a warp drive, but there's still a little bit of something that makes sense behind it that you'd need tremendous energies for this to work. So here's a way they address that, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and that was, 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 was really good. So, you know, it's a hard, hard topic, hard question, but there's just this element of believability that they were able to do. So despite the element of believability, are there some things that Star Trek gets kind of spectacularly wrong about how spaceflight would work? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I think will never go away is the uh, volume and mass will be precious, precious, precious quantities for any kind of spaceflight program. So even if you have warp drive and even if you have tremendous energies and things, the spacecraft, you're not going to have these humongous space quarters for every single crew member and giant recreation facilities and things like that. No matter how far down the road you get, it's just the realities of the mass and volume and the energy required is just, you know, exponential when you increase mass and things like that. So, so, you know, they certainly took liberties to make it almost, you know, more like a, a cruise ship or a military ship or something that doesn't have those kind of constraints so that it can be a pleasant environment. But I think it will, uh, things will be much, much more austere, you know, no matter uh, how far down the road, because, you know, you're, because you're always trying to go farther, right? You're always trying to take, take the energy or your capability and do as much as you can with it. And so you're not going to waste your space and your mass on things that you don't have to that take away from the primary mission of getting to the farthest planet possible, you know, or whatever it is. So, you know, I love all the Trek that's out there today, but I think that in some of the newer stuff, the stories uh, and the need to tell 
you know, something that is uh, going to attract viewers and, and be exciting for viewers in today's environment of super special effects and, and you know, really, you know, uh, you know, competing with other, other things that are really fantastic that they've kind of come up with their story elements and, uh, and then kind of tried to maybe sprinkle some science on it after the fact to, to justify it. And I think some of the believability for me at least has been, has been lost. And, you know, I'll, like, I'll use an example of, uh, and, and again, I love all of it, so I don't mean to diss anything, but I'll use an example from like the JJ movies where in the first one, they, uh, they have the horrible tragedy of Vulcan collapsing because of the black hole and, and so forth. Well, it just isn't possible that you could deposit Spock on, what was it, Delta Vega or something on the other side of the galaxy and look up in the sky and see Vulcan collapsing right at that moment. You just wouldn't, it's just light years apart, you know? And so, you know, things like that for the sake of the story and the emotional impact and things like that kind of bent the physics a little bit. And, uh, and, uh, and for me, again, great story, science fiction and all that, but that crossed the line of believability where the original series didn't do things like that. And so anyway, so again, I hate to put any of it down because it all has its purpose and you just have to take it for what it is, but it becomes a little more science fantasy than science fiction or science fact, the further down that road you go. And, uh, and uh, so anyway, there you go, an example. <laughs> So last year you were involved with Starbase Indy for the first time. What did you enjoy about Starbase Indy? Well, you know, I enjoyed that, uh, again, being a recent plant transplant to Indianapolis, just the fact that we have this here. And, you know, there aren't that many organizations like this in, in various cities. So that, so that that existed was fantastic. And then, you know, once I learned about it and got involved, what I really like about it is it's not just a, not a Star Trek watch party. It's not a just get together. It, it, it has a mission. It has this STEM element to try to inspire people, young, you know, young people, anybody really, mid-career, anybody to, you know, to inspire the interest in, in science and engineering and to see the relationship between that and, you know, the show we love so much, Star Trek. And, and even beyond that, that it's not just about okay, well, great, Star Trek and engineering or Star Trek and NASA kind of go together like they always has for me. But beyond that, there's this keeping as focused is the, the real vision of the Star Trek future. You know, it's more than just Star Trek the show. It's that we would love to see Gene Roddenberry's vision of humanity, you know, in 100 years or whenever it, you know, gets over its, uh, its struggles uh, to become one planet and then beyond that, you know, one federation. But, you know, it's just starting with Earth, with a united Earth and a vision of cooperation, uh, a lack of conflict and a focus on humanitarian and exploratory purposes as opposed to focuses on power and and materialism and and things like that is you know that vision of star trek that has persisted for 56 years now that starbase indy would like to see happen and our convention and our talks and our panels and and guests and things like that are all about you know sharing that sharing that positive vision and and trying to spread it you know spread it out to a larger community and you know and it's one that there's a lot of star trek fans out there that share that you know you go to the larger conventions and yeah they all nod and agree and everything but for starbase india at least that's in our mission statement you know it's it's not just about celebrating the show it's about celebrating the vision ahead of time and so so really like that uh and happy happy to be a part of it well we're very happy that you are a part of it and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today 
Sure. My pleasure. It's exciting to be doing these podcasts. And uh, I know you've got some really great guests uh, on other podcast shows that I've listened to and put out there. So great job. It's a new thing this year. So uh, it is a new thing and it is so yeah. much fun. <laughs> yeah. Great, great idea and great execution. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase!